1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, I had an interesting discussion with one of our colleagues recently where I mentioned this person that we're covering today. And said, oh, I'm thinking about doing that, but I'm worried it will be one of those things that everybody groans and says, I know that. Uh Uh-huh. And she said, uh, astronomer? And I said, okay, we need to do that episode. Um, because it is one of those things that Copernicus has name recognition. Some people even know some of the basics of his work, like his big claim to fame historically is that he placed the sun more or less at the center of the solar system and at the center of the universe in astronomical modeling. But for the record, uh, we should point out that he was not the first person to think of that. That was going on as far back as the 3rd century BCE when Aristarchus of Samos, who was an ancient Greek mathematician and astronomer, made the same assertion. But while... Aristarchus's writing on the sizes and distances of the sun and moon survived the perils of time his work on a heliocentric model of the solar system did not. So we only know about that part of, of his work because Plutarch referenced it in his writings. So that's why Copernicus gets a lot of the attention in this arena because we have his writings. Uh, and we are going to talk today about Copernicus and his life and his work, how his science was in some ways very dangerous. And there are also probably some surprising aspects of his life because it was really a lot more varied than just astronomy. So
2: the man we eventually came to know as Copernicus was born Mikolai Copernic. He was named after his father and was born in Torun, Poland on February 19th, 1473. Uh, As we said, he was named after his father. His mother's name was Barbara Watsonrod. He was their fourth child, and the family was quite comfortable. Their family business was in copper trading.
0: Yeah, they did quite well. Uh but when and I'm gonna go ahead and switch to the um the more standard pronunciation of his name, Nicolaus Copernicus, and we'll get to when he changed that in just a moment. Uh but when he was still a young boy in fourteen eighty three, his father died, and his maternal uncle, Lucas Vatzenrode, who would eventually become Bishop of Varmia took over the role of patriarch. And this was a really significant turn of events for Copernicus. Obviously, the loss of a parent is immense, but it was also important because his uncle really prized education and made it one of his goals that Nicholas would be well educated. And he was also very well respected in the church and he would use his position to ensure that Copernicus had a stable career.
2: At the age of 18, Copernicus went to the University of Krakow, but even though he would become a famous historical figure in astronomy, his studies also included mathematics and painting. This was also the period where he made the switch to using the Latin version of his name that we're more familiar with. As Latin was the language of European universities at the time, this was not an uncommon practice, not as one might originally conclude a mark of pretentiousness.
0: Yeah, you'll see particularly a lot of uh, scientists and astronomers like they'll be listed by a name that sounds like their Latin name. And then you'll see their their birth name, which is, you know, sometimes more European or or whatnot. Um, Very, very common. So thanks to his uncle's connections, as well as his own education, Copernicus got a job at the cathedral chapter in Fromburg as a canon in 1495. And the cathedral chapter was basically a corporate entity that managed the various needs and duties and finances associated with governing the diocese. And the clerics who worked there served under the bishop in fulfilling that mission.
2: This was basically an ideal job for Copernicus. It allowed him to continue academic enrichment with no limitations, although he had to attend to his duties as his primary focus. But any free time he had, he could devote to study, and he was able to take leaves of absence to focus exclusively on learning. Perhaps not surprisingly, he hung on to this job for the rest of his life.
0: Yeah, I don't know why, but when I was uh, doing the research for this, that seemed so sort of mind-blowing to me that can you imagine getting one job when you're 18 and that being your job forever? Yeah, I feel
2: like my job's been my job forever, even though I was 30 when I started doing
0: it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that is really, it speaks a lot to his uncle's influence and his uncle's um, uh, ability to kind of set these things up for him, that he was set for life because of the work of his uncle. But before he moved into that position, he spent two years in schooling. So in 1496, he went to the University of Bologna, where his uncle had also gone, and he was there to study religious law. And this made sense, given his job, of course, but this uh, time at, at Bologna would also lead to a really pivotal meeting in his life. Because he met Italian scientist and astronomer, Domenico Maria Navarra, who was a professor at the university and who was also boarding Copernicus.
2: Not only did this form a close friendship, but it also undoubtedly influenced Copernicus's thinking about astronomy. Novara thought differently than a lot of other astronomers at the time, specifically about the work of Claudius Ptolemy. Novara may have been the first person Copernicus was exposed to who actually questioned Ptolemy's work.
0: Which isn't to say that no one else was doing it, but there wasn't a lot of people (laughs) doing it, and they certainly weren't talking about it openly very often. Yeah, it was
2: kind of a dangerous subject to bring up. Yeah.
0: Uh, and he also began learning Greek while he was at Bologna, which would serve him later on when he began to study the work of Ptolemy and other Greek astronomers, because a lot of their work had not been translated into Latin at that time. His ongoing Greek studies included translating a collection of letters in Greek that were written by author the- Theophylactus Simicata. And he would eventually publish his translation after a decade of work on it, which was his only other published work outside of his astronomy writing.
2: Ever a curious learner, Copernicus also studied medicine for a time. He he attended the University of Padua beginning in 1501, but he couldn't finish his work there. The leave of absence that he had taken to do it actually ended before he could finish his studies. So he basically ran out of time.
0: Yeah, he actually didn't finish most of his educational courses. Like, he never graduated from any of these schools, but he got enough learning that he was still considered pretty much uh uh, adequate if not expert in most of those fields. One of the points of note, however, was that the study of the heavens was still part of his curriculum while he was in medical school, sort of. Uh, it was at that point standard to include the study of astrology in Italy's medical schools. This was in the early 16th century, as medical astrology was at that time believed to be a valuable diagnostic and treatment tool. The idea there was that doctors could use their knowledge of the patient's birth date to make determinations about their constitution and to determine courses of treatment based on celestial conditions at any given time and to predict how individual cases and even larger scale issues like epidemics might behave based on positions of heavenly bodies. So I imagine he did very well in that course, considering that he probably already understood how the cosmos was working better than most other students. But I am just conjecturing there.
2: Even as he tackled new subjects such as medicine and astronomy, he continued to study canon law and he attended the university of Ferrara in 1503 to get his doctorate on the subject. After this, he returned to Poland and lived with his uncle who was elderly at this point and required care. He lived in the Bishop's Episcopal palace and served as his uncle's physician while also busying himself with the work of the church.
0: And while his uncle may have thought that he was grooming Copernicus to take over the position of bishop, Copernicus chose instead to leave the Episcopal Palace in 1510 because the many jobs that were required of him there were cutting too deeply into his astronomy studies, which were really, really kind of the focus of his heart. He stayed at his residence that he moved to in the chapter of Frombork for the rest of his life
2: those years living in his uncle's court were formative in terms of his understanding of the cosmos. He stayed there for seven years, and throughout he was studying astronomy, although not enough for his taste. He wanted more. The exact date that he began working on his heliocentric theory is unknown, but there have been some theories that his exit from his uncle's home was concurrent with this idea. And we know that at some point he came into contact with Epitome of the Almagest, which was a book written by Reggio Montanus, who was born Johannes Mueller von Konigsberg.
0: And that's another case where we know him as Reggio Montanus because he took his Latin name for a lot of his publishing and his his formal training. Uh, yeah, there are some theories that he kind of got this idea in his head about heliocentrism and was like, I got to get out of here. I got to go work on my own stuff on my own, and I can't be focused on everybody else's needs. Um, and that's what potentially catalyzed his, his desire to move out. Oh, I had taken uh, and a
2: totally different uh, interpretation was that he uh, he wanted to start studying a heliocentric view of the universe and his uncle threw him out.
0: Mm-mm. We don't know. And we'll talk a little bit about why we don't know at the end of the, the podcast. But yeah, there's uh, there's some, some, some question marks around sort of what really catalyzed that exit. And uh, we are going to take a little side trip because we have to lay some groundwork and talk about, Ptolemy and the Almagest for context. But first, we are going to pause and have a word from one of our fantastic sponsors.
2: Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news.
0: Yeah, I am wildly excited and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm and it's not a calm situation at all.
0: you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So at this point, as I said before the break, we're doing a little side trip. We're going to talk about Ptolemy. Uh, So working in Alexandria in the 2nd century, Ptolemy developed a model of the universe that's called the geocentric or Earth-centric model. And the idea of the Ptolemaic system was that our planet Earth was the center of the known universe and that it was stationary and that the sun, moon, stars, and other planets revolved around it.
2: Beginning from the Earth at the center, Ptolemy's model placed the moon in the tightest orbit around the planet and then Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn.
0: Planets beyond that had not yet been identified. Yeah, and then the stars were kind of out past that. And Ptolemy felt that mathematics could unravel the mysteries of the movements of the heavenly bodies. So while his model was not correct, he really did make some really big strides in terms of analyzing and measuring astronomical data and how we should be doing it. And keep in mind, he was doing all of this work without the benefit of a telescope. So over the course of about 25 years, Ptolemy made astronomical observations and compiled data, which culminated in the writing of his book known as the Almagest, circa 150 uh. CE.
2: Having studied astronomy, I want to note that the, the math and the explanation you have to come up with to make the movements of the planet you can see match this theory is freely convoluted and complicated. Yeah. <laughs> like,
0: just, it's absurd. Which is what really drove a lot of astronomers after him to be like, wait, wait, something's messed up here. It we have to like work on this.
2: we're having to do a lot of weirdness <laughs> to make this model work. Uh, it's bizarre. Um, So while there had been some questions and criticism raised about the accuracy of Ptolemy's observational claims over the centuries, he's really continued to be lauded throughout history as a master mathematician. Because as I said, the math required to explain his planetary model is complicated.
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder if math wasn't so sort of natural to him that he was like, oh, we can figure this out. And it's kind of like if you ever recall doing proofs in geometry in school, there was all that, always that kid, sometimes me, that was not smart, but like I did the proof the long, weird way. And to me, that made more sense than often the shorter way. Cause it was like, no, no, uh, that doesn't, I feel like his was kind of like that. Like, no, 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 we'll just work this out. We'll add in some more numbers over here and it'll all be fine. And he's like, I'll we'll uh, get but there. Really, but there was a more elegant way and that's what people were intuiting and what drove them to do their work. Uh, and we have to mention the fact that it wasn't as though these concepts of celestial arrangement were happening in big bursts as one astronomer or another would pick up the idea and advance things. Like we have the big names of astronomy. We'll talk about like Ptolemy and Copernicus and Galileo will come up. And it's not as though like nothing is going on in between the work of any of these men. There are always entire societies happening. Uh, and before Ptolemy, there had been Aristotle, who really established the principles by which classical astronomy was observed. And there were other Greek astronomers working during the time of Ptolemy. And while Europe was going through its Middle Ages period, astronomy was continuing to be studied and advanced in the Islamic world. So it's always been on the table for scientists and mathematicians, but we tend to kind of group it in these big moments associated with certain people.
2: Yeah, well, and there are also uh astronomical Schools of thought in other parts of the world too, but what we're Completely. really talking, yeah, we're what we're really talking about are the things that, uh, that these these particular scholars would have known about and had access to. Reggio Montanus was a fifteenth-century astronomer who had been tasked with writing an abridged version of Ptolemy's Almagest, but in his work on that project, he recognized inconsistencies in it and he proposed alternative models to mercury's and venus's orbits than those that Ptolemy had described.
0: Yes, as we were saying, he kind of went this seems like something's not right. There's a lot of math we got to do to make this work. Yeah, there's
2: a whole thing of like little epicycles within the orbits. It's very complicated. Yeah,
0: it's it is. It's very complicated. And so we had talked uh before we went into that sidebar about uh, Copernicus coming in contact with Reggio Montanus' work. And that work shaped the way Copernicus thought about astronomy. And it may have been the key to the formation of his heliocentric model of the solar system. It's pretty widely believed that it, sometime by 1508, this approach to modeling the solar system was under development by Copernicus. So as we said, he left his uncles at 1510. So somewhere in those two years, it does seem like he was really starting to feel like he was onto something.
2: And even as he worked, he had to have known that this work, which was a departure from Ptolemy, was radical in nature. Not only was Ptolemy's view of the heavens a long-standing accepted scientific fact, it was also what was endorsed by the Roman Catholic Church. This the very same church that employed Copernicus and for which his uncle was a prominent
0: bishop. Yeah, that seems, like, awkward. <laughs> um And that employment, though, did continue to make demands on his time. So even while he was working all of that astronomy out, he was still serving as canon, seeing to both the political and administrative uh, and financial issues for the church. And he even wrote an essay. uh, This is one of those factoids about him that I think goes unnoticed a lot. He wrote this essay on the debasement of currency as it related to coinage, which was a problem that he constantly ran into while managing funds as part of his job. And that work that he wrote was later referenced by leaders in Poland and Prussia as both of those countries struggled with their currency's destabilization. In
2: 1512, his uncle, the bishop, died. And the following year, Copernicus, still devoted to learning more, built himself
0: an observatory. Yeah, that was completed in 1513. And then the following year, he completed writing Commentariolus, which translates to small commentary. And this was not a lengthy tome. It clocked in at just 40 pages. But it gave a description of what Copernicus believed to be a more accurate model of the universe than what had come before it. And he described that in seven axioms.
2: The first was that there is no one fixed point that is the center of the universe.
0: The second, which was pretty groundbreaking, was that the Earth is not the center of the universe.
2: The third is that the
0: sun is near the center of the universe. The fourth is that the distance from the Earth to the sun is imperceptible compared with the distance to the stars. And that the universe was far more vast than they had ever conceived of before. The
2: fifth was that the rotation of the Earth is what accounts for the apparent daily rotation of the stars.
0: Sixth was that the apparent annual cycle of movements of the sun is in fact caused by the Earth revolving around it. And the
2: seventh is that the apparent retrograde motion of the planets, so when you're looking at the stars from the Earth, it seems like they are moving backwards rather than forwards, uh, is caused by the motion of the Earth from which one is observing.
0: So in addition to those seven axioms, the Commentariolus hinted that Copernicus was also going to publish his supporting mathematical formulas for them. He also indicated that illustrating planetary motion required no more than 34 circles, which was a much smaller amount, as Tracy was referencing earlier, than what had come before.
2: He wrote in this short manuscript his reason for breaking with the accepted Ptolemaic model, quote, "...yet the widespread planetary theories advanced by Ptolemy and most other astronomers, although consistent with the numerical data, seemed likewise to present no small difficulty." For these theories were not adequate unless they also conceived certain equalizing circles, which made the planet appear to move at all times with uniform velocity, neither on its deferent sphere nor about its own epicycle's center. Therefore, having become aware of these defects, I often considered whether there could perhaps be found a more reasonable arrangement of circles from which every apparent irregularity would be derived, while everything in itself would move uniformly as is required by the rule of perfect motion.
0: And this manuscript was circulated by the astronomer to his colleagues as a sort of precursor to a larger work that he expected to produce. And at the time, he didn't really get much in the way of direct response. He didn't get a whole lot of feedback. But there was certainly talk about him, if not to him, and his work. And the gossip was not particularly good. Uh, His work was seen in the kindest terms as unconventional, But mostly because it challenged such deeply held beliefs, it was also considered flat out wrong. And one of the criticisms that was leveled at his work and his writing was that it really didn't provide an explanation for the switch to the Earth to be orbiting around the sun when they all knew in their hearts that the sun orbited the Earth.
2: He continued to work on astronomy for the rest of his life, but again it wasn't his only focus. After having served as his uncle's attending physician, he continued that role for members of the chapter and prominent members of the community. And when West Prussia went to war a- against the Teutonic Knights in 1520, he served in a leadership role. He's basically a busy guy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, he um he had his hand in many pies, uh so to speak. And in 1539, Austrian astronomer and mathematician George Joachim Redicus visited Copernicus to study under him. He was, uh, if I remember correctly, he was kind of touring and visiting a number of different scholars. And while he did learn from Copernicus, Redicus actually had some pretty important things to teach Copernicus as well. In particular, that there had been great advancements in printing achieved in Germany. And he showcased that by bringing mathematical texts with him that were really, really high quality. And Redicus is Credited with convincing Copernicus that he should in fact publish his life's work that he had been writing all of these years. And he eventually supervised getting that book into print.
2: We'll talk about the last few years of Copernicus's life and the publication of his life's work after we take one more quick sponsor break.
1: The future is closer than you think and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news. 5G is coming. But what does that really mean? How will it impact me? In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. From environmental science to law enforcement, entertainment, healthcare, and travel, innovation is coming. Join us as we explore how this revolution could impact your life And here, just how close we are getting to a more connected future, full of possibilities in the age of 5G. This time tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: So the book on the revolution of the heavenly spheres had been more or less completed when Redicus arrived for his visit to Copernicus in 1539. It had, in fact, been complete for quite some time. And while the issue of acceptance uh, among scholars and society is often cited as the reason for hesitation to publish it on Copernicus's part, moreover, he really wasn't convinced that his work was complete
2: Reticus wrote an introductory document titled Naradio Prima in which he described the contents of On the Revolutions, which published in 1540. This document both uh, pre-preluded and praised the research Copernicus had done and further encouraged him to publish.
0: On the Revolutions finally did go to print in 1543. And Copernicus dedicated the six-volume work to Pope Paul III. There's debate over whether he did that just as sort of a political move to try to curry favor with the church, knowing that he was saying some things that the church wasn't going to like or not. But before the printing was completed, Reticus, who was, as we said, overseeing all of it, was appointed to a new position. And that was professor of mathematics at the University of Leipzig. And he had to leave. He couldn't finish the whole thing. And he left the remainder of the project in what he thought were very safe hands. Those hands belonged to Andreas Oziander.
2: Andreas Oziander was a mathematician and an astronomer he was also a minister and a follower of Martin Luther, who thought heliocentrism was heretical. So, Osiander took advantage of the fact that Copernicus was quite ill at the time, and that he was in charge of the book, and he wrote an addition to the book's preface. This addition said, quote, since he, meaning the astronomer, cannot in any way attain... To the true causes, he will adopt whatever suppositions enable the motions to be computed correctly from the principles of geometry for the future as well as for the past. These hypotheses need not be
0: true nor even probable. This is one of those things that makes me really mad. Because this additional text was added to the preface, readers presumed that Copernicus himself had written it, and it actually undermined all of the work that had gone into the book. It was basically saying, well, I was just playing with theory and futzing with things to try to make the math work. It it was basically denouncing all that he had done. And it was actually decades before this deception of that preface was uncovered by Johannes Kepler. In the spring of
2: 1543, Copernicus had a stroke and he was, as we just mentioned, still ailing when the book was published. Reticus brought a copy to his deathbed, and when Copernicus died on May 24th, 1543, he was allegedly holding a volume of the book in his arms. We're actually coming up on the 474th anniversary of his death in terms of when we recorded this episode today.
0: Yeah. And so for the next five decades, On the Revolution circulated throughout Europe, and it's uh, one of those things where Copernicus probably thought it was gonna cause some problems, but he Probably did not see how big that problem was going to be in terms of of really starting some battles. It did, however, have a second printing in 1566. And astronomers, of course, analyzed and debated the merits of the solutions Copernicus had presented to reconcile his issues with the work of Ptolemy.
2: While Martin Luther had openly denounced the work, the Roman Catholic Church had never made an official statement. We don't know what Pope Paul III thought of the astronomy book that was dedicated to him, even though he, even though that dedication was probably done to curry favor and to try to soften the church's reaction. Allegedly, one of the pope's advisors, Bartolomeo Spina, was planning to condemn heliocentrism and the work Copernicus had done, but he died before he got a chance to do that.
0: Yeah, so there was no official statement. Uh, so while there had been much furor and criticism since the 1540s that the book contradicted scripture, it actually wasn't until 1616 that the Roman Catholic Church placed on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres on the index of forbidden books. Although a corrected, and that's in air quotes, version, was made available to scholars, it actually stayed on that index until 1758. And that was about 60 years after much of Copernicus's model had become widely accepted by astronomers and scientists after revisions by his successors in the field. Of course,
2: while Copernicus's work advanced humankind's knowledge of the cosmos, it still had some significant flaws. For example, we know that our star, the Sun, is not the center of the universe, nor is it near the center of the universe. And while both Ptolemy and Copernicus developed celestial models that feature circular planetary orbits, they are now known to be elliptical, which means you don't need these weird circular orbits with smaller circular epicycles in them to explain how the planets move.
0: Yeah. And in many ways, what's really interesting is that Copernicus does remain a mystery, even though he's been written about and studied a lot. But most of what's been studied is his work. Uh, We mentioned earlier in the episode that there's no known date as to when he began working on his heliocentric theory. And that is because no existing notes or records of his astronomical work other than those actual manuscripts have survived. So even writings of his student and friend Reticus detailing Copernicus's life have been lost. So most of our knowledge is the result of a lot of painstaking research on the part of historians who have assembled this puzzle of his life uh, by studying the various elements of it and of his friends and his friends' letters over time. So that's a, a big shout out to historians solving the mysteries of the past. That's Copernicus. Yeah,
2: it was... Was a step in the right direction in terms of understanding how the
0: solar system works. Yeah, uh, but not yeah. the final step, obviously. No, I mean we could still discover new things. I'm excited all the time about new discoveries in uh, in astronomy. I don't think it's any secret at this point to anyone who's listened to this show that I like astronomy a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have listener mail per se. Although the things I'm talking about came to us in the mail. Uh, but since we were talking a lot about books today, I thought it would be cool to mention a couple of authors who have sent us their work that is really unique and interesting. One is first a book of fiction. I have not read it yet uh, by writer Bree Spangler called Beast. And she sent it to us because, and she even highlighted the pages, uh, one of her characters listens to Stuff You Missed in History class. I think that's I think. Not- the most charming thing she sent us an email about it before Well,
2: and someone who is a fan of those books also tipped us off to that fact at one point i think it was a it's like i i think it was a fan of that book and not that seems like it would be weird if there was some other book where someone (laughs) also listens to our show uh we definitely got an an email that was from a reader that was like hey i'm reading these books and this character in the books listens to your show
0: yeah it's so sweet and so charming, and what a great honor um and it actually mentions the um the dia pass incident podcast so uh episode that we did so that was super lovely and Brie wrote us a lovely um note in the front of the book, and it's gorgeous, and I can't wait to read it um so thank you so much what again what a tremendous honor the other one is um uh, was sent to us by uh Ronald Wimberley who is an artist and a writer and it is a really really cool uh book that was published by Image Comics but it's an actual book book not the comics aren't book books but you know what i mean it's like a a different style it's not a comic book uh although it is illustrated and it is black history in its own words and it's his really really striking visual style alongside quotes prominent people throughout history talking about black history and it's kind of in this these um these very short brief little intros with the quotes and the art and it's really really lovely um so everyone from audrey lord to laverne cox is in here and it's absolutely gorgeous and thank you thank you thank you because what a gorgeous work i hope he's tremendously proud of this it's amazing uh as well as Bree should be i'm authors are always a uh, um of great uh what's the word i'm looking for i always greatly admire authors because that's that's a whole job that involves a lot of sitting down and being focused and really sort of a birthing process of thought, which I love. Uh, so thank you so much to both of them for sharing that work with us. We appreciate it always. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at... History podcast at howstoveworks.com. You can visit us across the spectrum of social media as missed in history. So that includes Twitter as missed in history, Facebook.com slash missed in history, missed in com. We're on Instagram as missed in history, and we're on Pinterest as missed in history. Uh, if you would like to come and visit our parent site, that's how stuff works, you could. Go there, howstuffworks.com. Type in the word astronomy in the search bar. You're going to get so much stuff to look at. Uh, you can also visit me and Tracy at mistinhistory.com, where we have back episodes of every show we have ever done, both us and previous hosts, as well as show notes for the the episodes Tracy and I have worked on. We include those show notes now in the uh, in the show page, so it's all in one handy place. So we encourage you come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
2: How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating. Or having your
1: first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting. We're just starting over.
2: On The Road to Somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple
0: Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, guys. It's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show And I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives. We tell our stories. We try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.